You're listening to On the Record Offscript. My name is Mark Coffin, and I am your host. The Nova Scotia Legislature is back this week, tomorrow, and today we are back. Back to our usual thing, unpacking the experience of Nova Scotia's former MLAs, where each week we get a chance to take a deep dive into one piece of Nova Scotia politics. This week we're bringing you two brand new full-length episodes dedicated to exploring the relationship between the media and MLAs. The first episode, the one you're listening to right now, will be drawn from our interviews with former MLAs, and the second will be drawn from four interviews my co-host, Sandra Hannebaum, conducted with four of the people whose job it is to cover the Nova Scotia legislature when it is in session, and who otherwise cover Nova Scotia politics when the legislature is not sitting. In this episode, we start with the MLAs. Every question I got from the media practically felt like a skeptical one that if I continued to sort of read between the lines and them would have made me neurotic, I'm sure. Well, after cabinet meetings, I always hated after cabinet meetings because then it was like, it was like I felt like, dumb, 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 like which minister is going out to be fried in front of media? And, you know, it was like, and they want you, and they want you, and they want you, and like, you're just like, and then if you didn't get called, you go, phew. <laughs> like you're just going, who's in trouble today? Because that means I'm not. <laughs> because... The scrum? Have you ever seen a scrum? We never set out to ask MLAs about their relationship with the media, but it was a topic that came up repeatedly when we sat down with them for a two-hour interview to reflect on their time in public life. For people who had been 5, 10, even 20 years out of politics by the time we spoke with them, it was top of mind. It was especially top of mind when we arrived at what was often our last question in the interview. That question sounded something like this. If there was one thing that you could advise to improve Nova Scotia's democracy um, and its political system, what would it be? Some people answered that question by turning to the legislature itself, or to the premier's office. And in a rare few cases, they turned to their own behavior. And in some cases, they pointed to the public's understanding of politics. But more often than any of those responses, the focus was turned on the media. There's a special relationship between the media and MLAs, especially between the media and the MLAs who are part of government and cabinet in Nova Scotia. It's not a relationship that's based on implicit trust. And it sounded like MLAs were simply annoyed that the media were always there, while at the same time still understanding that they played a crucial role in the democratic process. When anybody is asked what needs to change, it's just human nature to point to the things that trouble us in others, rather than to point at the things that need to change in ourselves. If you're diplomatic about it, as some MLAs were, you frame it as a problem with the relationship and don't point fingers at anyone's side of it. If we could change anything, it would be the relationship between the media and the public and the media and the, and the elected officials. But not everybody was diplomatic about it. There are some good journalists, but there are some very weak journalists that focus much more on sensationalism. In this episode of Offscript, we share some of the stories we heard from MLAs about the media. We hear a perspective from the backbenches of a government caucus. There's nothing you can say, and that is probably one of the most frustrating things I've ever experienced was standing on a doorstep when someone was feeding me back some piece of information that was totally wrong, and yet it was something that was being spun in the media. Then... One MLA recounts what happened when he tried to lay off the controversy. A breakfast meeting was arranged for me to meet with a representative of the press gallery, and uh, he was going to read me the facts of life. 
And finally, a story of an opposition party leader who had to revisit a challenge he faced during his teenage years in the final week of an election campaign. When I got a call from the Daily News reporter at 9.30 at the time, the story's going to run tomorrow morning. What am I going to do? But we begin with a story from somebody who has sat on both sides of the microphone. A story from a cabinet minister who used the media to influence a decision within the government of which he was a part. Wayne Adams was a five-time municipal councillor and one-term MLA for the riding of Preston. Before trying his hand at politics, he was a broadcast journalist who had his hand in human rights reporting, sports reporting, and he also sold cars. Wayne's story is one of somebody who didn't seem to be bothered by the presence of the media. He used his comfort with it to his advantage. His story begins during his campaign to get elected as MLA. The dominant issue in his campaign was about a municipal landfill that had been proposed for East Lake, which was part of the riding he had run in and part of the area he served as county councillor. Wayne was on the no-dump-near-Preston side of the campaign. And David Hensby and myself basically headed up a an anti-dump campaign. And it was rather successful. We had over 200 people join the, the, the campaign, the committee. Posters, road signs, letters to government, petitions to government. They had to find another place, not the Hid Lakes. And they just kept proceeding with it, eh? So I used my position as county councillor, obviously, before I stepped down from there and got a headline every other day. <laughs> Wayne said that the choice of a dump site near Preston, a black community, was a form of racism, environmental racism. The community feared they would no longer be able to do things like fish or swim in the lake or the rivers near it. I became a candidate, and that was my battle cry. If elected, there will be no landfill. And everybody was warning me, Adams, it's not that easy. <laughs> and I said, probably isn't. I took a bunch of provincial bureaucrats, they told me the same thing. You may be a minister, you may be a member, whatever, but it won't be easy. A lot of legal stuff to go through. I remember Wayne was a county councillor before he ran to be an MLA with the Liberals, and all of this was happening before the Halifax Regional Municipality was a thing. It ended up turning into an issue of the city of Halifax, who wanted the landfill, versus the county of Halifax, which included Preston, who didn't want the landfill. And I can't say I understand exactly what the mechanics are of how the city could put a landfill in the county without their explicit consent, but it became clear that the city was going to get their way. Wayne understood that provincial governments could be more powerful than municipal ones, but during the campaign, the party leadership, his party's leadership, wasn't calm, knowing that Wayne was promising voters that there wouldn't be a landfill if he was elected and they were the government. Short, I think the premiers had a heart attack over it when he heard me uh, in the campaign saying there'd be no landfill. He says, Wayne, you can't say that yet. Just say you're going to fight from a higher level that there won't be a landfill. I said, oh, that's a good line, too. I'll use that. The Liberals win the election, and Wayne is appointed to cabinet. He'd become the Minister of the Environment later on in his term, but initially he was named the Minister of Supply and Services. Following the first caucus meeting, Wayne had his first run-in with the press as a cabinet minister. We emerged late in the day. There's a battery of reporters and cameras all over the place. And they all came to me. And I'm thinking, Freemers over there. And the question was, will there be a landfill at East Lake? Yeah, East Lake. And I'm thinking, we never even talked about that. <laughs> so the answer was, no. I've been elected. And then what happened? All my colleagues ran for the garage. 
It was funny. It really was funny. It was like scattered. <laughs> Did you hear what he said? Boom, I'm over here. And when, when you eventually crashed the car? No, I don't think it was. It was too early and too sudden. I was the vocal point. Then the guy who was my, um, became my uh, media relations officer in the government, in the, in the portfolio, he met me and says, I got the press clippings the next morning. He says, you're all over the news. I says, what did I say? He said, you said no. There would be no. <laughs> I said, how are we going to resolve that? He says, from my point of view, so be said, so be done. We're writing letters to the city right now. So whatever happens, we'll deal with it. That was Wayne Adams' story, and his was a relatively unique one. He was comfortable with the press. What was more common when we heard Demolais talk about the media were the following two complaints. First, that the media don't always get the facts right. It was common for MLAs who are part of the government to tell us things like this. The second complaint we heard a lot of was that the media seemed destined to find a conflict, to seek it out, if not outright provoke divisiveness, and that doing so was hurting our politics and our public life. First, we'll explore the facts, or I should say, the stories that we heard about the facts. We spoke with former Premier Rodney McDonald five years after his progressive conservative government was defeated in the 2009 election. He remains an avid consumer and armchair critic of news media in Nova Scotia. He's got some empathy for the government of the day when he knows they're in a position that is being misrepresented. I've often read the paper or heard a broadcast and said, well, that's not what the minister meant to say. He meant this, and it's clear. Why make a big issue of it? And he or she was uh, doing something and, you know, said something and was taken out of context, government policy. And they actually didn't understand the process. Which was fine, you know, and that's history. But they just have to be very mindful. Everything they're saying is taken as truth. And if it's not, then it's it's unfortunate. The only real people that are hurt by it are the public. So. From the perspective of the MLAs who served in government, or the governing party's caucus in Nova Scotia, it can be especially difficult to ensure the right message gets out to Nova Scotians. You know, I know that press is difficult. It's a demanding thing being in the media. For media people, I got to know a lot of them very well. And, you know, they're all stretched. They're all overworked. That's Pam Birdsall. She was the MLA for Lunenburg and a member of the NDP caucus during their term in government from 2009 to 2013. You're given talking points from whomever, and they look at it and go, okay, and... Some will put one twist on it, others will put other twists on it. I do have to say that having been a member of government, sitting around a caucus table, discussing an issue, knowing how the issue had developed, where we were going to go with it, and then hearing the 5 o'clock news and their clip or their take on it, which was so far removed from what I knew to be true... Mm My level of cynicism reading and listening to media has um, gone up a little bit. Pam was a backbencher, and by all accounts we've heard, was not your typical backbencher, was on the inside and had the ear of the premier and the right people when she needed it. I asked her what advice she would give for a future NDP government, should the party find their way back there someday. I think the biggest thing was people didn't know what we did. I think there was a huge problem in communication. When I would meet with people. Sometimes they would come into my constituency office and 
They would say, this, this, and this. And I'd say, yes, but we're already doing that. I'd say, what do you mean? I'd say, well, we've already done that, and we're working on this. I'd say, oh, how would you know that? I said, yeah, really, how would you know that? And I don't, I don't fault people for it. It's just very difficult. It's difficult to get at it. So, you know, I guess don't believe everything you read <laughs> or don't believe everything you hear. And you know that a spin, a spin is the way it goes. If an idea is spun enough, it becomes a vortex and everyone believes it. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing you can say. There's nothing you can say. And that is probably one of the most frustrating things I've ever experienced was standing on a doorstep when someone was feeding me back some piece of information that was totally wrong and yet it was something that was being spun in the media. And I say, no. Remember what it was? Oh, there are many issues. <laughs> there were a lot of different things. And, um, and I would try to say, no, this is actually what really happened. And once in a while, people would say, oh, okay. But mostly they'd say, you're like all the rest of them. You all lie. I don't vote. And that's the end of that. And I can't say that that was a huge part of my experience, but it was very frustrating when, I, when it did happen because the word didn't get out there. Pam didn't name the specific issue that she experienced this kind of response about on the doorstep. She did acknowledge that the media and the elected officials weren't the only ones that could prevent important information and perspectives from getting out to the public. Communications Nova Scotia is quite, quite a body. And, you know, there were times when so many restrictions on things. You know, if a minister was coming to my constituency to talk about something, if Communications Nova Scotia would say, if a minister is saying something, even if the MLA has something pertinent to say, and there's a quote, my quote would not go there because the government would be represented through the minister and that would be it. Really? Really? Huh. How is that helping anybody? One would think that if you had two voices talking about the same issue, your local representative, your member of the government, fills it out a bit more. It helps in communication. Communications, Nova Scotia. Wouldn't that be, you know, a plaudible kind of thing? Communications, Nova Scotia, plays a big role. We don't have time or space to get into it now, but it's a topic that will get considerable attention in episode 13, also being released today. From Pam's perspective, dysfunction in government communications was a part of the reality of being an elected official, just one of the many dysfunctions. So there are lots of things that, you know, government is government. It's like anything else. It's like there are dysfunctions among family members. There are dysfunctions in political parties, in departments. And you have to do the best you can and leave it at that. People would say, oh, Pam, you must have a really thick skin. And I would laugh and say, no, I have a Teflon energy field. You know, I just don't let it stick to me. And if they're throwing it, it doesn't stick. By this point, I got the sense Pam was talking about the kind of conversations and tensions that politicians can find themselves in more broadly, including but not just limited to her experience with the media. And that has been the way I've thought of myself my whole life. And the energy field just got a little more slippery. (laughs) My philosophy has always been the only thing you have any control over in life are your own thoughts and your own reactions. It's the only thing. And you can't lose your mind about someone else being in acting in a way that just makes you crazy. You know, you can lose your mind doing that, but it doesn't help your your own physical health or mental health. And you just got to go, okay, all right. 
there you are, that's your thought, fine, and walk away. To um, maybe the other person being infuriated that you're not reacting the way they hoped you would. And a lot of people, you know, especially if you're a politician, they go on a fishing trip, you know, and they want to lure you in and get a reaction. That feeling of being lured in, though, for the purposes of evoking a reaction, that was something that framed the subject of our next story's relationship with the media, too. Every question I got from the media practically felt like a skeptical one that if I continued to sort of read between the lines and them, would have made me neurotic, I'm sure. That's Danny Graham, former Halifax Citadel MLA and the leader of the Nova Scotia Liberal Party from 2002 to 2004, during a time when the Liberals were the third party in the legislature with fewer seats than both the government and the official opposition. In the interest of full disclosure, Danny's a friend of mine, and I sit on the board of directors of Engage Nova Scotia, the organization he now runs. I had a lot of difficulty with the nature of the institutional expectations associated with politics. And it started with the presumption that you pretend always to be right in what you have to say in politics, that you take on this bravado about always being right and the other side always being wrong. I realized that I'm beginning to behave in a way that was inconsistent with the lessons that I've learned from my mentors and the things that I want to teach my children. And so I think some of my colleagues in our caucus would have seen me to, to behave a little bit less typically, especially when I was not in the fire and brimstone sort of throwing tomatoes at the other side mindset. In our interview with him, Danny told us a story about a come-to-Jesus moment of sorts he had with one of the members of the legislative press gallery. There was an experience that I had when I was a political leader where the government of the day was appointing two new political ministers, and they were from parts of the province that didn't have anybody around the cabinet table. Uh, remembering what I said about the importance of cabinet decisions in forming policy. And so my caucus colleagues were saying, the only reason the Premier's appointing these two new members of cabinet is to ensure that their seats in Dartmouth and North Sydney, are, are in the north side of Cape Breton, are safe. And while I suspect that that would have been a secondary or tertiary motivation... For Nova Scotians, the primary news was that these areas of the province are finally getting representation around the cabinet table. Despite Danny's caucus colleagues urging him to be more critical, he chose another tact when speaking with the media that day. I said, this is a good thing that the Premier has chosen to do, and uh, the people of those parts of the province should have representation around the cabinet table. And so when I went back to my cabinet... I was surprised that they forgave my altruistic sin. But what Danny wasn't prepared for was the call he says his communications advisors received from a member of the press gallery. They wanted to sit down with Danny, and not for an interview, just for a chat. And so a breakfast meeting was arranged for me to meet with a representative of the press gallery, and uh, he was going to read me the facts of life about the need for me to be more critical and implied that, well, he said that it had already been discussed about whether or not I get more coverage if I'm not more critical. So 
There is a role that the media can play that is more productive than the one that they've been playing for some period of time, but I don't want to cast... That was a single incident, but I frankly think that it is a window into the culture that forms the context from which they express their voice. So it's it's a very different relationship. I have a new relationship with the media, with audiences, and it's a very different contract when you're just a regular citizen in those kinds of uh, conversations. Danny was careful not to put all of the responsibility on the media. If it's a triangle, you know, government, citizens, and the media, and in particular political figures, citizens, and the media. And I have fewer complaints about the quality of reporting on individual stories. So I don't complain about inaccuracies. It's rarely happened to me, despite other people complaining about it happening all the time. What I feel gets missed is context. And I think that there is a role for us, for everyone to play around creating a fundamentally different context in this area. The last story we'll share in this week's episode is about an opposition party leader who told us what it was like to have a story dug up from his teenage years, just days before the election, an election that many thought might have ended up in him becoming the premier. Now, you know, in in 99, you may recall that I think 10 days or a week before the election, the story came out about me and a drunk driving charge from when I was 19, right? Robert Chisholm, then leader of the NDP, was being interviewed by a reporter from the Canadian press in a sort of get-to-know-you kind of an interview. You know, these things, you know, what's your favorite color, what's your favorite book, that kind of stuff. I remember doing it in the back of our van, going somewhere, I think, from Truro to Picto. So I was doing this interview on the phone, Mm -hmm. and, you know, what's your favorite food, and all this kind of stuff. And, um, And the question was, have you ever broken the law? So I quickly went to... Uh, yeah, when I was 16 years old, a week after getting my driver's license, I got caught for speeding. But what Robert didn't say was that he'd also been charged with driving under the influence when he was 19. The reporter didn't ask any further questions after he told him about the speeding incident, so he didn't tell. That's the thing, is that, did you ever break a law? And I said, yeah, I, I uh, you know, caught speeding, blah, 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 you know. Learned my lesson. I've never sped since, and that sort of thing. But that was it. I was kind of waiting for the follow-up because, you know, I, I mean, you know, I'm not going to lie, right? It's something that I'm not proud of. I never talked about because it was like that's then, this is now, and so how did it eventually? Come and out? so what happened was when this story broke, when I got a call from the Daily News reporter at a 9.30 at the time, and I said, yeah, yeah, that, no, that, that's true, that's me. Well, the, the story's going to run tomorrow morning. I thought, fuck, what am I going to do? Um, anyway, so the way the story was spun was that, that I lied, uh, that I'd been asked before, and that I'd lied mm-hmm. about it. 
Again, all of this happened less than two weeks away from the provincial election of 1999, an election that would reduce the number of seats held by the NDP caucus he led from 19 to 11. A big blow. So think about that for a second, that I, you know, in 96, uh, I became leader, two people, in, you know, three years, you know, we were the official opposition, you know, we're part of the equation all of a sudden. So it was just go, 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 right? Right. To that, to to the 99, and then, and then boom, conservatives are in the majority. And... We were still the official opposition, which was good. We were probably no sooner than two terms before we could become... We had a good shot at government again. The NDP were defeated, and Robert wanted to understand why. Following that campaign, we did a review, and I went, probably biggest mistake, but this is that's just uh, it's the way I work. I, I travel with the review committee that went around the province and talked to new democrats and heard all of the all of the disappointment and all of the expectations and all the anger and mm-hmm. i shouldn't have worn a tie all the time and and that i was too tightly wound up and that uh you know how could i have not told people that you know i had this drunk driving charge and mm-hmm. a lot of what robert had heard was about his public appearance how he portrayed himself and how the media portrayed him He reflected on how all of this compared to the man who ultimately won the election, progressive conservative leader John Hamm. You know, it was hard for me to compete against the country doctor, right? That's how John, the honest, humble, old country doctor, that's how John was presented. And so it was hard for me, hard to me to challenge him. After Robert stepped down as leader of the NDP, he was replaced by Helen MacDonald. Helen MacDonald didn't last long as party leader. In 2002, when the position of leader became vacant again, Daryl Dexter declared his bid to lead the party. Very soon after he did so, it was then pointed out that he too was convicted of drunk driving when he was 19. Both men had a history of the same offense, at the same age. Neither of the two were proactive about disclosing this part of their past. Both men owned up to it, once they were called on it. The only difference in the two stories was that Daryl's revelation came just before he became the party's leader, and Robert's revelation came near the end of his time at the helm of the party. It's unclear whether the revelation was the deciding blow that tanked Robert Chisholm's campaign to become premier. But what is clear is that in 2009, Daryl Dexter won a majority government and became the premier. During the campaign that brought him there, nobody was talking about his DUI. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Offscript, one of this week's episodes of Offscript. Remember that there are two episodes this week, the second episode, where we hear about what it is like to cover the Nova Scotia legislature from some of the journalists who have been doing it. It is also available now, and you can check it out at springtide.ngo slash OS13. If you're a longtime listener of Offscript, we'd like to ask you to consider sharing this week's episodes of Offscript, whichever one you like. The easiest way to do so is to head over to springtide.ngo slash OS12 or springtide.ngo slash OS13 for the next episode and share that page on Facebook, on Twitter, or via email. If you like Springtide on Facebook or follow us on Twitter, you can just also head over to our pages there and share it from there. When you share the podcast, it helps us grow the listener base, and growing the listener base makes the podcast more sustainable. 
Another way you can help us do that is by giving us a star rating in iTunes and writing a short comment about why you like the show. You can do one or both of those things. If you're one of the people who has just listened to the show for the first time and you like what you've heard, please subscribe. You can subscribe in iTunes by searching for On The Record Off Scripts or doing the same thing in whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. If you're not a podcast listener, if you don't listen to any podcasts, but you still stumbled upon this episode somehow and you want to hear more of what we do, head on over to offscript.ca slash subscribe and we'll walk you through how to make podcasts a part of your life and show you how to get notifications each week when a new episode is released. 